wanted to try to create a data structure that's for us, that's accessible for us, and that could serve the needs of our community. And you know, like this is Klezmerland and people are interested. We have the most amazing folks in this community who want to know the details. So that's kind of the top level dream of what this archival resource would be. Welcome everyone to the Radiant Others Klezmer Music Podcast. My name is Dan Blacksburg and I'm recording from Philadelphia. I'm so excited to welcome you all back to another conversation between me and some folks from our big Yiddish world. Today I'm talking to returning guest Christina Crowder and new guest Clara Biome, who together are leaders of the Klezmer Institute. The Klezmer Institute is a digital-first organization founded to support Ashkenazic expressive culture through research, teaching, publishing, and programming. I say Christina and Clara are leaders of the organization, but not only are they just a small part of a much bigger team, which they talk a lot about this episode, they're part of a huge community of really dedicated people who are working with old sources, whether they're written or oral, online and getting into great debates on Facebook groups and other kinds of online gatherings about all sorts of things, minutia and really big picture stuff about the music. Christina and Clara get into how they put the Klezmer Music Institute together, who all the people they're working with, and actually how they're dreaming of new ways to create Yiddish, or as they call it, Ashkenazi expressive culture. We talk about what it was like to start all this right during the COVID-19 pandemic and how that actually was a silver lining for some of the really amazing online and digital transcription projects that they were working on. We'll talk about some of their dreams for what they call the Klezmer Archive, a repository for as much Klezmer knowledge and ideas that they can put together in one place. And we get to share a lot of stories about all the amazing people from our broader community who have come together to do really cool work for the Klezmer Institute and for themselves. It's a really cool project, and I'm so glad to be able to share a lot more about what they've done recently and what they hope to do in the future. Before we get to the conversation, once again, we are asking for your support on Patreon.com. That's www.patreon.com slash Radiant Others. Please go there and give what you can to help make this podcast awesome and sustainable. Thanks so much. And here's my conversation with Christina Crowder and Clara Biome of the Klezmer Institute. So we got Clara Bio and we got Christina Crowder. Welcome to and welcome back to the Radiant Others Klezmer podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So we're here today to talk about your work as leaders of the Klezmer Institute, which first question, how long has Klezmer Institute been around? Well, we're officially founded in 2018, late 2018. And... That was after a period of work that Clara and I had met each other in probably 2017 and whenever you were in New York mm -hmm. and we and then had subsequently hung out again. And that hanging out 
and some conversations with Zev was sort of the impetus to like, okay, we better make this official. And then we worked for a long time together to try to come up with a mission statement for what is this thing gonna be. And then eventually we got a first that first take on the mission statement together after actually kind of a lot of work. And um and then we filed our papers. 2019 was a pretty hectic year. Lots of travel happened. And so we were sort of organization building in a way, but not really doing much. And then, of course, pandemic happens, 2020. Uh-huh. And bada boom, now we have, you know, kind of things start to really get off the ground. Yeah. Anything to add, Clara? No, yeah, that's that's how it happened. Like shuttling me back and forth from the airport and stuff was when we got a lot of when I was on the East Coast when we got a lot of our like preliminary conversations, you know, car time and whatnot. So it was, yeah. I have to share a story about that now because the night I met Christina Crowder was back in 2007 at a wedding in like way deep into Brooklyn, like way, I don't know if I've been that deep into Brooklyn since led by Alicia Siegel's, and I was staying at Michael Winograd's, and you definitely gave me a ride back from the wedding, and I said, hey, I'm going to Hungary. Somehow it came up that I was going to Hungary at the end of that year. I mean, I just want to remind everybody that I was, uh, that makes me like 24 years old at the time or something like that, or 23, yeah, 24, and you were like, okay, you got to talk to this purple, you're going to stay with my friend Tom, you're going to do this, 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 this. And then boom, I had like an entire week's trip worth of stuff completely taken care of. And then we also didn't see each other again for a number of years after that, which is so funny. But anyway, so Car Rides with Christina, Yep. highly recommended. Highly recommended. Awesome. (laughs) Yes. I remember that car ride very, very well. Uh, And another, I think, really critical moment, actually, was Yiddish New York. That last pre-pandemic YNY, like a lot of like really important things happen at YNY. So, you know, it's a shout out to the interconnectedness of everything. Clara was here in person. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so we were able to have some meetings. And then as happens at Yiddish New York, you end up having conversations with people that you don't know very well or that you're just meeting or that you know through other mediums. And um, I had met Max Rothman going out for bubble tea with a bunch of people like late at night. And so we got to know each other a little bit. And then the next day, Clara and I were walking down the street, going to lunch, as you do. And we were talking about this concept for the Klezmer Archive. And Max, who was in the ear band that year and who I just hung out with the night before, he's like, Glesmer Archive, what are you talking about? What is that? And it turns out that Max and Dan Kundathagard had been thinking about pretty much exactly the same concept for several years. And hearing me and Clara talking about this thing kind of sparked his interest. And purely through the happenstance of a Yiddish New York lunch scramble, We ended up all going out to lunch after Yiddish New York with Max and myself and Clara and Eleanor Bozinski and a couple of other... Matthew, I think, was there Matthew Stein was also there, Mm -hmm. right. Yep. And that faithful lunch after Yiddish New York was kind of the kickoff for Klezmer Archive that made it feel to us like this was something that we could apply to the NEH with. So... For that specific project, right? For exactly that project, Yeah. Wow, that is so cool. And as far as I know, you got awarded the funding from that application, right? Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. 
And I mean, oof, so many things I want to I want to stay stay big picture for a little while though, which is that one of the things that was so awesome in preparing for this is you sent us all of this documentation, including your mission statement, the description of the projects, and all this stuff. And it was it was really great to go over that because I see you out in the world, but really online in the world, doing all sorts of things. And it was great for me to get reacquainted with the big picture that you all are working with, that you're all taking on, you know, and you do have a really well-defined and clearly stated big picture, which is so cool. Specifically, the one thing that I drew out of that was, you know, we have this world where we have this term klezmer music, which potentially comes from more recent times and its current usage, and has certainly come to mean, uh, be an umbrella term for like, God knows what, and certainly like Yiddish song, Yiddish theater, instrumental dance music, maybe even some religious stuff, you know, and at least for a while, it sort of became the stand-in for Yiddish music or what you've talked to the old guys, they go, we called it Jewish music, you know, and um, you use this phrase, Ashkenazic expressive culture, as your active umbrella term, and I was just wondering if you could go into that, you know, especially vis-a-vis the way we use klezmer in its all of its messiness. Well, I mean, so the, the, the specific phrase really comes from Zev, you know, okay. Zev Feldman, who, as we were doing this early work to, to create a mission statement, you sort of use this term. And we just sort of put it into the mission statement as if it was something that would be comprehensible. And then we realized, actually, part of our actual mission is to sort of define and explain what this weird string of words actually means right. in relation to our topic. So your question is very well, very well made. And the way we're using it now is this idea that expressive culture is a concept that sort of comes from academia and an expressive culture incorporates concepts that have to do with things that people do in an embodied sense that reflect a cultural reference or a touchstone or sort of a cultural community or a heritage community, as we might say. And so this idea of Ashkenazic expressive culture isn't just limited to a thing like music or a thing like a song or a thing like theater, but sort of recognizes that all of those things are interconnected and that they share a reference point of being connected with Ashkenazic culture, Eastern European Jewish culture specifically, you know, which connects with, like, say, we could say Sephardic expressive culture, you know, they, they're also connected, right, uh, with each other. And so, yeah, that's kind of the short version of, of how I would explain that. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because it strikes me as a very different kind of a term than the term klezmer music mm-hmm. or even Yiddish music because that's sort of just naming the thing, whereas this is, like, maybe this is just the academic element of it where it's sort of building a context for then talking about a thing inside of it. Totally. It's a way of also saying that, like, Klezmer music, this thing that we call klezmer music, is for dancing, and that it's very deeply connected, like it exists in part to inspire human beings to dance at weddings, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so this, those things exist together as part of this cultural expression. And, 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 and this music also exists to make the bride and her party to cry right. at the 
Kalabavainen, right? And so that that it's it's a way of saying all of these things are like really connected and inclusive of these sort of physical, cultural things that we do. So it's an umbrella. It has Ashkenazi dance and it has klezmer music and Yiddish songs, Sidic music and all of this stuff inside of it. But it's all about corporal, corporeal or physical expression as opposed to like intellectual things per se, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and I, it, it's it's funny that I feel like it's it's a useful frame for us because as people who are interested in Ashkenazic expressive culture, we find ourselves always trying to grasp so much at once. You know, it's like all those things you just mentioned in other communities would kind of like, for example, maybe have their own workshops for each one separate from the other. You know, I don't know if that's how it goes in at like a Balkan camp or an Irish camp or a fiddle camp, or at least maybe the workshop itself is a lot bigger or maybe happens more than once a year, <laughs> you know. Uh, but there's there's those of us in the Klezmer scene who are like, oh, a Yiddish New Yorker or a Klez Canada or a Yiddish Summer Weimar or some of these other ones, you know, we're trying to get it all in all the time, every time. And it's, so yeah, we kind of we kind of need a term like that in a way. For those of people who are just listening, everybody is nodding in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so like Klezmer Institute gets started. I think we should just jump right in because you mentioned that things really got going when this weird thing in 2020 happened, which, uh, you know, also, since we're talking about early 2020, I have to shout out Clara <laughs> for saving my butt, saving my hide at uh, Klezmer Kirky, put together some cool electronic tracks that we played live uh, in like less than 24 hours, it as was, you do. Amazing. Yeah. It was a whirlwind and super fun. And one day it we was... will put out that album we keep talking about. That's right. We're going to get into it. We're yep. going to keep working on that stuff. Yep. But in the meantime, so we were all living our whirlwinds of 2020, looking ahead to God knows what. I don't know. You know, you probably were thinking, oh, this Klesmer Institute's really cool. And I hope we get enough time to work on it. <laughs> and then suddenly you find yourselves with more than enough time to work on it. Like, how did you all approach like like what happened you approached this thing happened and then what yeah i mean when you start an organization like just you co-found it yourselves you have no money (laughs) and Mm -hmm. therefore you have to do all of the other work to pay your bills and then hopefully scrape by some time to make it happen and you're right like as soon as march of 2020 happened all of a sudden we're stuck in our houses and have time. And so putting together, that was a really intense time of writing the NEH grant for the Klezmer Archive. We were doing, Christina did all of the legwork in that time for preparing the Kisselhoff Makinvetsky manuscripts. Like it was just time to to buckle down and get a lot of nitty gritty work done and start having some really big conversations as well with project teams and do a lot of dreaming about the projects. Like for, to dream enough to found an organization is one thing. And then to to dream about two big digital humanities projects is like another whole animal. So it was a lot of, I, we were probably on the phone with each other for I don't know, three to five hours a day, most days, just like 
getting getting everything prepared to make it public. It was intense. And then the launch of the two projects, well, the one project in November of 2020, the Kislov Makinovetsky Digital Manuscript Project happened. And then end of December, we got the Klezmer Archive Grant. So we went from like relatively little happening in 2019, certainly that was public facing, to suddenly having two massive projects, which was really exciting and intense. <laughs> that sounds intense. Yep. I mean, if you know, if we think about the silverest of silver linings that came out of the, the COVID period is that Clara had just an insane idea that we should apply for an NEH grant. And I was just like, are you out of your mind? She's like, no, no, no. Yeah, we should do it. And I'm like, are you sure? Are you? I, I mean, okay. Okay. If you say so. All right. Cool. Yeah. All right. And Clara just sort of wrangled this application together and sort of took care of all of the like the, you know, there's this thing, there's this, you know, there's like this part, you know, section one, section two, section three, all of this stuff. And she and I together were involved in the sort of writing and learning how to write together and think together. And then also like forging this team, this nascent team of people who had this common interest, but had never worked together before into like trying to figure out and articulate. So what is this Klezmer archive thing? You know, because like taking a thing from this idea of concepts and then having these amazing folks, you know, Max Rothman, Dan Gundathagard and Matthew Stein, who were able to sort of lay out in technical terms, mm-hmm. like how we could structure this thing. The things that we needed to think about in terms of writing about a structure, like it's it's impossible to like sort of outline how, you know, sort of overstate how important that was to coming up with the team. And then, of course, we have Eleanor uh, Bozinski, who has, you know, just just massive experience in the archival space, who had uh, shepherded through the projects. You know, she was like sort of deeply involved with the projects that put the Ruth Rubin archive online. So she had a lot of like really great things to add to um, the conversations about that part of the work. And, and through that, so then we, we, and so through the writing of the application, we came up with this great idea. And then we also kind of learned how to work together. And, and Yonatan Marlene, I don't want to leave Yonatan out of this as well. We, we also met Yonatan at Yiddish New York. And he just brought like this real gravitas and this sort of connection to the scholarly world that we continue to benefit from, you know, all the way through. Like, because he's able to connect us with uh, some people who work, were working and are working in the computational musicology space who have been just profoundly influential in how we think about the work and how we think about who it's for in an academic sense. And he's also just a great writer and super thoughtful and very interested and totally involved. And so like, you know, having this sort of team come together around the application process was phenomenal. And and we kind of thought, well, okay, so we don't get this grant, but we got a great team and we kind of know how to work together. So like we can go for that next thing, you know? And then, and then, and then, of course, you know, then, then we got the grant. So that's... Yeah, you didn't have to worry about it. We didn't it. have to worry about it. So, well, and then we had other things to worry about, but those were really, really, really tremendous and awesome problems to have. That's awesome. Can you 
go into a little detail about the Klezmer Archive Project. I There's like two things I want to put a pin in. One is the who is this for conversation, which I think we can talk about later because I want to just get more people understanding what these projects are first. And then the second thing is I want to hear about the origins of getting access to the Kisselgoff Archive. But first, okay, what is the Klezmer Archive Project? The Klezmer Archive Project is a digital humanities project to develop a resource to make all available information on Klezmer music and the people surrounding it available and accessible and searchable and useful for research and for creating new art and just having a repository in one spot that can also serve as a hub of communication as well and collaborative research and development. And I think I can explain a little bit more about where it comes from and why it needs to exist by kind of explaining like a couple of like little short stories about like who it's for. I had this experience when I was sitting in Romania, like going through these folklore books, being like, gosh, I just wish there was a way I could like keep track of all of these tunes and like, you know, just where they're from. And like, I barely had a computer at that point. And I was like making these, I was literally like cutting pieces of paper out of photocopies and pasting them into like little notebooks and stuff. And like, it was Mm. sort of woefully inadequate, but I was like, wouldn't it be cool if there was a way to like put all this stuff together so I could compare like Romanian music and Moldavian music to Jewish music and, you know, come to find out that Max Dan had also had these ideas like, ah, you know, it wouldn't be great if we could compare melodies and variations and versions because it comes up like so much because it's so big. This music is so big. It's wide, geographically wide and deep. You know, you've got everything from sort of Bessarabia all the way up into Lithuania, just sort of as a historical territory across which there are many, many different iterations of this music, all kinds of different names, you know, different dances, different customs, different interactions with different kinds of music. I mean, there's just so much. It's so, so much. And that is even before you get to the United States and North America or never mind Brazil. Like just it's huge. So this transnational cosmopolitan repertoire is really hard to keep track of. So who's it for? It's for like somebody like Ives Neves, who is this like supercomputer in his brain of remembering tunes and knowing about variants. And, you know, Joel Rubin is another one who's great at this. Josh Horowitz is terrific at this as well. Like these people who are just carrying around massive connective tune tissue in their brains, right? And so the dream is that we could sort of help to get it put together in a place where other people could see it. Take it out of the Facebook thread. Because we've all been yeah. in those threads where like, oh, yeah, you know, this tune, blah, blah, blah. I got there's a YouTube of this here. You know, Dan, yeah. you know, you classic Klezmer, Dan Karkner's YouTube channel. Go to Dan Karkner's page. You'll see all these fun references there. And, you know, like cause Facebook is not for us. Like Facebook is not for us. It's for Facebook and Meta. Yeah, that's right. And so we wanted to try to create a data structure that's for us, that's accessible for us and, and usable by us, designed by us. And that could serve the needs of our community to sort of keep track of these incredible connections that thread the music together and 
you know, like this is Klezmerland and people are interested. We have the most amazing folks in this community who want to know the details. You know, you're one of them. We're, we are them. We're all of them. So many of us who want to connect where a tune comes from, to a location, to a performer, to who they learned it from, you know, all that stuff. And so so that's kind of the, the top level dream of what this archival resource would be. And the reason it needs to exist is because it doesn't, these tools do not exist yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of hype and there's a lot of energy and an amazing creativity going into this big umbrella of digital humanities, right? Digital humanities is a hot, super hot topic because the computer's computational power can help us to connect these things. Mm -hmm. Um, But music is hard. Music is tricky. It's about also like centering and focusing on the community that is being served. This is not like the entomologist butterfly case where you kill the butterfly and you stick a pin in it and you stick it under glass so that other people can look at it. It's saying that like we're a community of people who are invested in this culture and we want to have a tool that helps us see things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see and to then also bring people in. Yeah. It's so interesting because I'm thinking about how you know, the computational power lets you build really large or very or even very fluid structures that it's not just about looking at this set of information or this set of music in one way. It's about looking at it from all these different angles, you know, a much more three-dimensional or maybe even more dimensional a structure of how you, you know, because a culture is is like that. I feel like the computation power can get us so far, but the human power of like providing outlets to use this information is the place where my brain goes and something where we still need, we still have a lot of work to do, even as all of us, you included, are providing a lot of opportunities for people of many levels, professional to amateur or everywhere in between, to actually play this music together or to explore this music together. And uh, it's good because one of the things without that kind of archive is you have to rely on a leader to provide the information for the most part. Some people are willing to, some people get the psyched and go out and find stuff on their own, but it's interesting, right? Like we have, we have to, maybe, maybe you're going to build this thing and then the rest of us are going to have to sort of rise to the occasion to provide enough people power to use it. Yeah. I mean, hopefully it's a space where everyone wants to come and contribute. It's a space where interactions can happen. I think about when I first learned about Klezmer and I started digging into it and I was like, I have no clue where to go, where to look. And it was clear that there was a lot of information scattered everywhere. And so the the thought of bringing it together and combining it all. We talk a lot about community knowledge, right? And in a way that's dispersed among all of us, but what the power of bringing it all together is already and going to be even more remarkable for not only us who are specialists in this, researchers in it, performers in it to advance to the next level because we're collaborating and seeing this information in one space, but also for someone who's new to have direction and access to it, it's hopefully providing both breadth and depth to 
what we can do together and bringing in more people. And so hopefully it's an exciting space where people want to be. space is it a website is it a forum i sound like such a (laughs) fuddy-duddy saying this but you know i'm just thinking about the different models of online gatherings of information i have in my head there's like a library site there's like those old school list serves there's a new school or now kind of old social media forum so it it exists at a url or a set of urls and then what well so uh, <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you two things. Another super secret, amazing component of our Cosmo Archive team is uh, Skylar Versteeg, who is a user experience expert. And they have brought some amazing things to the project. One of which is uh, being very cautious about talking about what a thing is going to be before you do the research about what it should be. But with that caution in mind, and I can hear them saying that, you know, at one of our retreats, <laughs> I can share some things that I think are pretty, pretty true. One is that, yes, it's going to be a website. Like there's a URL. It's going to be called, right now it's called the Klezmer Archive Project, but in the future it will be called whatever our final name of the project is. And you will show up there and there'll be welcome page, landing page. There might be a thing for if you're new to Klezmer, you know, come on over here. And it might ask you, like, you know, what instruments, you know, do you play an instrument? Oh, I play the oboe. Uh, Here's uh, three tunes in the Klezmer repertoire that might work really well for you if you're an oboe player. Do you want to know about? Klezmer dance forms, like here's some little FAQs and sort of dialogues about a Freilux is a blah, blah, blah. And here's three videos or three audio samples you can listen to that are good examples of what we call a Freilux from various periods in time uh, from various locations. Maybe there's five things. I don't know. But then I think the heart of this resource will be search. And then also kind of like a sort of a social commentary kind of component. So searching for things that are based on criterion that Klezmorum use or that you and I might use, like, oh, I want a Freilux from uh, this region from this time period. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said, hey, can you give me some tunes that were from Ukraine? Right. For example. Right. Topical. Right. Super topical. And the thing is that, like, the Library of Congress subheadings up until Judith Pinola started working on it recently, like within the last year or so, like did not have anything more fine grained than like Jewish dance or like Hora. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have this thing, we call it domain specific metadata. Right. And so that yeah. what that means is like things that are relevant to our domain of expertise. And so if you wanted to search for, you know, Skutchna or Frelux or, share any of our sort of dance forms or social functions like Kalabazetsin, Doinan, so like this, you would be able to search there. You would also be able to fight about the things that are coded I as mean, genres. It's a Jewish archive. Totally, exactly. Right. And and the idea is not to say like this is a Freilux. 
but that that there's a way for these for over that for a thing that you might categorize as a bulgar and that I might categorize as a frelex that it's okay for both of those things to be true yeah, at the same time, tags. right? Because they can have because they can have both tags, and it's interesting to look then at that group of things that have those both of those tags on them, right? Yeah, or whatever the deal is. So you know, kind of having this really robust and flexible way of categorizing things is really important. And then uh, I'm going to ask Clara to speak about this idea of documenting human relationships type stuff. But before I go there, we have another model that's like super cool that I do want to mention as a vision, a vision that we've held right from the very beginning is the idea that we want to invite commentary about tunes. We want to invite discussion kind of on the level of the item, right? So that you would have the item, you have the music, you would have some things, you might be able to hear a MIDI representation of it or a link to a recording. There would be a thing that would also have what we call the Talmudic view, where you would have the item centered in the middle and then all of the commentary around it kind of laid out, if we can do it, laid out in the way that we see that uh, a Talmud page laid out, you know, so that like South Fallsburg Bulgar or one of my classics. One of one your of classics. Jams. You know, we could go to that and maybe there would be a note from you saying like where, who you learned it from, where you, wh- why it's such a staple in your repertoire, da, da, da. I might come in and comment and say like, oh, I played this with you on the radio in Philadelphia. It was a great afternoon. And I don't know, somebody might come in and say, well, that's from the repertoire of so-and-so, also from from Maine or, da, da, you know, wherever, wherever it might be. But the idea is that that, that we can also just let things that disagree with themselves exist in the same space. Yeah. Because, of course, right? With this stuff, for sure. Right? In the Wikipedia model, you see the page about a thing, and it's a single narrative, right? All right. the editing happens behind the scenes. And in this space, our vision is that the conversation and the ideas and the notes and commentary about an item are visible. Well, that's culture right, right. there. Right. The, you know, Wikipedia, an encyclopedia is not a cultural document. It's not, a, and it's certainly not a process, right? Totally. So, uh, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, so, yeah, I'll pick up here. The thing that I am focusing on a lot in our current stage of, of work for the Klezmer Archive is documenting human relationships because the way we see music travel throughout the culture throughout communities, especially musics of oral tradition, there isn't always an, uh, an item to attach it to. And rather, it's the people that we want to have a, a map of, essentially. And so I've been using uh, Michael Elpert and Bronya Sakina as like a case study. I want to be able to articulate the kind of relationship there so that we have an understanding of not just like the number of items and the number of recordings that came out of their connection, but an understanding of the depth of that relationship and how much cultural knowledge was shared there. Something we often talk about is like, there are so many incredibly important people in the community who do a bunch of teaching, a bunch of traveling and various spaces, and maybe they don't have a really extensive recording catalog but that doesn't mean that we don't want to know where they've shared tunes and what tunes are most important to them or have a lot of meaning for them and so by documenting the humans we can start to see the way the tunes move historically and in the contemporary communities which 
is really interesting when we start thinking about that for the Kisselhoff project too, because we've had this, this moment where the manuscripts went out into the world and these tunes just like, we can see it happening in real time and in a very fast pace, how these tunes are moving around the world. So documenting those people sharing that knowledge is deeply interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about it's such a good case study with Michael and Bronia because it's a finite, it's bounded, right? Bronia is no longer with us. And that was a real one-to-one relationship between two people probably in a room together only, you know, when and agreed upon times, right? And, or maybe, maybe slight semi-agreed upon, who knows? But, you know, the new work is disseminating the communities are coming together in completely new ways. And, you know, I'll say that, like, the Klezmer community as a whole or the Yiddish music community as a whole is a good place for this because we've already been organizing and self-organizing ourselves in new ways and at least in very deliberate ways since this whole thing got rolling in the 70s. I mean, we've had to be super deliberate about it. That's That's kind of the whole point here. There's one more little thing, little teeny tiny thing. It's a call out, a shout out, and another component that adds to this uh, kind of human sort side of things and community side of things. And that is like sort of finding ways to make this Klezmer archive resource the next 2.0 version of the Klezmer Shack, mm, right? Because okay. Ari Davidow's Klezmer Shack was the central hub of Klezmer lands, you know, for a really long time. And and he just single-handedly just connected things. There were listings for bands. There were concert promotions. There were reviews. There were album reviews. Like he just, and so any, anybody who wanted to get involved with the Klezmer community kind of, somebody was like, oh, you should go check out Klezmer Shack. And that was the place where people yeah. went. And, um, you know, it's still there and it's still, but it's a little bit less active, you know, these days. Well, it's a different know. time of the internet. It's really totally. like, it's like a different internet. You know, totally. I think it's very representative of the internet at that time. And I do recommend everybody go look at not only how many Klezmer bands there were that he had blurbs about, but also how many unbelievable names of Klezmer bands there were. <laughs> It's really a that's that's got a, that's its own uh, something or other, but yeah, it seems to me as though not only are you reaching for something that brings together, but you're reaching for sort of the edge of what the internet can provide us now, and that's really cool because I want something new out of in terms of social connectivity out of this whole business. Yeah, I think it's really important to mention the tech team is incredible and they've discovered this knowledge engine tool that we are going to like use features from that is used in industry a bunch and not, to our knowledge, used in the humanities very little, if ever. And so we're really hoping that this connection of that super powerful tool our domain-specific ontologies, like, not only does it serve our community, but it's a sample for other projects, other musics of oral tradition, other folklore studies of ways to use this really advanced technology in a way that facilitates our work. So hopefully it goes a long ways. (laughs) Right. Yes, lead the way. (laughs) Lead the way. 
So, so back to Kisselhoff. So I'll tell the story as I have it. In the summer of 2017, Zev Feldman and Judith Frijeshi went to Japan to, to do some lectures in Tokyo about Yudut's uh, work on Davenin and Zev was there and he did a presentation and then he did a dance workshop. And to the dance workshop came Mariko Mishiro, who is uh, one of the kind of core klezmer people in Japan. And she brought her friend, Anna Gladkova, who was doing her PhD in computational linguistics in Tokyo at the time, you know, as you do. And they knew each other there. And Anna, both Anna and Mariko had attended Yiddish Summer Weimar some years previous to that. So they knew each other. And so when Zev's uh, dance workshop happened, they both went to go hang out, do the workshop and uh, hang out. And then Anna very kindly and generously offered to take Zev home on the subway so that he wouldn't get lost getting to his hotel. And somehow on that short 20 minute subway ride, Zev brought up the fact that at the Vernetsky Library was a bunch of material from the Ansky expeditions that hadn't really been worked with very much. And wouldn't it be nice if we could get some of the klezmer tunes, like make them accessible for people to, to work with. And Anna was like, oh, okay, cool. So she was heading home that summer and she went back to Kiev that summer and she had a letter of recommendation from Mariko's institution in Tokyo because Mariko wanted to write an MA or maybe her doctoral thesis on the Jewish wedding and klezmer music. So she had this letter from her institution requesting access to the Kisselhoff materials and off Anna went into the, to the Vernadsky where somehow she successfully was able to negotiate that she would get photos of this material. And in order to make it happen, Anna was at the library every day for several days. Zev Feldman was in Israel, where he dropped everything to translate. And I'm sorry, there's going to be a lot of names here, but follow, follow the dots. Berikovsky had, uh, Moshe Berikovsky had written a catalog, a handwritten catalog of Kisselhoff, Zinovi Kisselhoff's musical collections that were made during the Ansky expedition. So uh, Berigovsky had wanted to do his own PhD work. And in order to get started, he wanted to know what was there at these, you know, what, what were the holdings? So he went through Kiselhoff's stuff and made a catalog of it. And Anna got a photograph of Berigovsky's catalog, sent it off to Zev, who then translated the Yiddish into English to tell Anna every day what she should ask for. Mm. because of course like many um, institutional places like you can't just roll in and say like give me everything you know because time uh, restrictions and financial restrictions so they're like well you can't have everything but like you know let us know what you're interested in and we'll make it available to you so she would come in with these lists of numbers and then they would be photoing them and meanwhile pete was back in new york quietly fundraising yeah pete rushevsky was fundraising to pay for the images themselves. So he put together, you know, just enough to cover the cost of the photography, which is, I think, two or three dollars per image, you know, for the time for the guy to do the work. So this is all kind of happening in this sort of like round robin, hush, hush, hurry, hurry thing over the summer of 2017. Uh, and then Mariko was involved as well. And she was like, hey, Anna, I see that there's this thing about the Makinovetsky wedding manuscript. Can you please make sure to get that? and include that in the stuff that you acquire. So that's what came out of that was 850 high resolution images 
of the physical pages of the notebooks of music from the Anski expeditions, broadly speaking, and then A.E. Makinovetsky's, we call it his wedding manuscript. It was his handwritten music notebooks that he prepared for Berigovsky in the 30s. Okay. And have you fundraised for a, an Ocean's Eleven-style montage <laughs> film about how this all went down? That would be amazing. Because oh I, like, I feel like it sounds so espionage. It's, it's got such a heist energy behind it. And I'm also projecting that a little bit because I have these flashes of memory in my head. Because, you know, I've been doing this a little bit longer than 2017 or whatever year you just said. And I remember hearing about this stuff and how inaccessible it was. I mean, like, there's all this information. Maybe it was from Zev. And it's just, yeah, yeah. I think it's it's such a great story. And I, I, I like I said, I think it, it, it deserves a short, uh, some dramatization at some level. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, you know, that's kind of a plan. I, like, apropos of the moment, Martha, Martha Desrosiers in Paris we had a meeting with her like back in 20, 2020 or 2021. And when hearing about this project, she immediately went to theater. She mm-hmm. was immediately yeah. into the storytelling aspect of it. And so at the Fundor zu Dor Festival in France this spring, we're going to be trying to do like kind of a theatrical take on this whole, this whole, the story. Time travel, there's going to be time travel, there's going to be, you know... I mean, that's what it is, right? Yeah. Like, this is what we're doing. Music is time magic, right? Totally. Totally. It totally is. And I think that's why it's so compelling and and it's so improbable. I mean, the Anski expeditions themselves were extraordinarily improbable, right? You know, like, like Anski has this vision. He has this vision like, ah... You know, I can see this Yiddish kite, the Yiddish culture is slipping away before our eyes. If we don't go out and take a look at it and sort of document it, it is in danger of just disappearing. And this is in the late 19th century, this early right, 20th right. century. Modernity is galloping across Europe. It's galloping across the world. But like, you know, the Russian Empire is changing dramatically. Yiddish culture is changing dramatically. People are working in factories. They're leaving home, all this stuff, right? Yeah. He's like, we got to get out there and do this stuff before it's too late. So he found a sponsor and off they went. He put a team together and off they went. And they they visited like 70 different shtetlach over the course of 1912, summer of 1912, summer of 1913, and then 1914 until the war started. Wow. So it's, 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 it's astonishing that this material even exists. It's astonishing that the material in the collection at the Vernadsky survived. You have, we're talking about... Right. there's uh, been a couple things that have happened in that happened. area. There's a few things. A few things yeah. happened, right? And mostly, as far as I understand... Everybody thought that it must be the case. It must have happened that all of it was destroyed. And so through another series of improbable events, our beloved Mila Shalchova discovered the cylinders. She found the wax cylinders when her office moved, when she was doing her work there as a student. And somehow by a miracle, the cylinders survived and the Vernadsky Library Institute of Sound Recordings is digitally transferring those discs and making them available 
we should wow. we should be we should be wishing for the war to be over soon for many reasons, but also so that this institution can get back to its work of supporting Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian Jewish culture. That's amazing. Yeah, so so our improbable story of the Tokyo dance workshop like is just one of this long series of in- incredible and improbable events. Amazing. Yeah, dramaturgy right there. <laughs> totally, it writes itself totally, almost. Totally, totally. Oh my goodness. Okay, but now there's the new there's today's chapter which involves a very active Facebook group and I don't know how many people dedicating a ton of volunteer time. It reminds me so much of this podcast that I listened to where one of the hosts has a citizen science organization where they like you know, they get a picture of a meteor and they have to categorize all these little bits of the meteor. It's like the recaptchas where the computer can't tell what's a stop sign if it's facing 90 degrees from itself. And so they need humans to do it, but there's not scientists don't have enough time. So they have like, you know, just citizens going like that. That's a crater. That's this type of thing. And that's sort of what people are doing with these tunes, right? Totally. Totally. Uh, another shout out to Yiddish New York, 2017 Yiddish New York. I got invited to a bagel shop to meet with Anna Gladkova and Marco Mishiro, who both came to Yiddish New York that year in person. And, and Anna came with a stick. She just came with this little tiny memory stick. Mm-hmm. And we sat down with Zev, myself, Marco, Anna, and Pete Ryshevsky, and we talked about what the stuff was. And I heard the whole story about how it had come to be. And Anna, who was the person who had acquired these materials, to like, I'll be delighted if somebody wanted to work with this. I want to be involved in a project, but really kind of on one condition. And that is everything has to be made available to the public all at once, right from the very beginning. Like this material, this cultural heritage of the Jewish people has been hidden away, thought to be lost, fortunately safely protected at various institutions across the former Soviet Union and now in Kiev at the Vernadsky. But we can't hide it. It, it's, it needs to be shared. Yeah, it does. And so she was very adamant that we had to not, not just say like, oh, we're going to work on it and we'll let you know when we have an edited volume, then we'll share the stuff. It's like, no, no, no. Everything in its original state right from the very beginning so that anybody who wants to see it, anybody who wants to touch it and feel it and work with it, can do so. And so that's where the whole the whole project design came from that initial impulse. Mm-hmm. She sent us this lovely quote that we keep going back to for all presentation we do, talking about this project, it's really the heart of it. The Klezmorum interviewed by Kislegoff were professionals with an eclectic collection of different tunes in their repertoire that let them earn a living generation after generation, adapting to the new tastes and audiences. Their voices faded through numerous social cataclysms, but luckily the archives survived. While these materials are very important for research, their biggest impact is going to be when they return to the fingers of the musicians and the feet of the dancers, when they continue their journey through human hearts. Luckily, we discovered this time capsule at a post-revival time when there is a a generation of new klezmorum more than capable of processing and reviving this repertoire. The communities of Yiddish Summer Weimar, Yiddish New York, Klez Canada, etc. are the real heirs to those who contributed to the archive in the first place. Why not pass them their inheritance and let them develop it further while helping to create a curated academic edition? (laughs) ¶¶ (laughs) 
Amen to that. I'm I'm down. I think that that's that's what we need. We deserve that. You know, we put in so much work. I think about my own work with the klezmer trombone stuff, where I get no validation from any sources except the ones that I decide, you know, and then you get every once in a while, you get like a taste of this, you know, it's like you work so hard to create a structure for transmitting this culture and these ideas and this way of approaching music, you know, and then our friend Dave Levitt posts or someone posts this 78 on YouTube and Dave goes, oh, that's my grandfather. And then for whatever reason, they let the trombone right up next to the microphone on that track. And so you can actually hear every note he plays. And lo and behold, for me, it matches the kind of overarching ideas that I had. And I'm, you know, very lucky, very fortunate, but it's also like we do, you know, musicians are so incredibly powerful at being able to reach through time and communicate with other people and their ideas just through sound, even crazy scratchy sound, like on those recordings, you know, we just do it somehow. And that is magic. And, you know, let's cast more spells. Because, you know, one thing is, we need a lot more information and and context to really keep building out what this music and our identity as Jews or non-Jews who decide to dedicate themselves to this culture, you know, to build it into even more of a living thing than it is already. Yeah, totally. You know, there's this there's this thing that Anna latched onto, which is that fortunately we found this in the post-revival time, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's like two big things there that I'm really kind of s- sort of stoked about. And one is that, you know, obviously the Cosmo revival was like amazing and exciting and, And then it was all really revolved around a lot of like uh, commercial recordings, right? So from the 78s and then human connections between people who were the mentors and the the transmitters of this culture, you know, Dave Terrace and Bruno Sakina and Sid Beckerman and like all of those sort of like amazing folks who were able to share, Pete Sokolo, of course, yeah. Uh, who were able to sort of share directly their knowledge with a younger generation and to transmit that culture in that sort of way. And I could just imagine that even if this musical manuscript stuff had sort of appeared magically, you know, in 1982, that it might not have gotten a lot of attention. And even if it had, like, we wouldn't have the skills to maybe interpret it because it's not recorded music, right? We don't right. have very many recorded examples of what this would have sounded like. And so because Klezmerland is awesome and people are investing, you know, have invested in time and like understanding Belf and understanding all of these old juicy recordings uh, through the scratches, right? That now we can look at something that's written down as a just a lead sheet and we can bring to it all of this knowledge this klezmer stuff the klezmer the klezmer magic and um and then the second part of that is like it's really awesome that we that us right now everybody who's involved in the project we're we're on this expedition right we get to do something new uh in that same way of excitement of discovery as had happened during the klezmer revival you know when all of those thousands of klezmer bands sort of sprang up all around North America and around the world that were sort of documented by the, 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 the klezmer shack, you know, that is because it was all new and fresh and exciting. And so we're getting to have a new and fresh and exciting sort of period as we dive through these tunes and premiere them and transform them. 
Yeah, and it seems like one of the ways you're doing it with you know, the Facebook group, maybe you can detail some of the other activities that people have done. I know people are just literally writing these out into notation programs, but it's, it seems like it's giving a lot of people more ways to sort of discover things. Whereas, you know, I think of the, dis- the, the closest thing to that, that I remember from my experience was when German Goldenstein and his repertoire kind of swept the scene and it was like a big deal, but you know, like most other musical expressions, it was sort of like your ability to get close to it was based on your access by your own instrumental ability combined with whoever you were and how that, you know, and all that kind of dynamics. Well, also because it's coming from a paper source or a written source, there's so many more points of entry for people to sort of make their mark rather than only, you know, leaving it to the virtuosos. So yeah, what are some of the activities that you all are doing or that people are doing with these? Yeah, so the community has been incredible. Over 200 people have registered for the project and have contributed in some way or another. To start with, we had digitizathon events. The first was a 30-hour marathon of people getting together and looking at the manuscripts, working on text translation or doing notations and, and just getting into the weeds of like, this looks like it might be a B, but maybe it's a C. Or let's look at other spots on this page to see if we can determine is like constant puzzles and putting things together. And so we have the digitizathon events. We've kind of um, phased those out now. We've had play along sessions. So once a week, Christina usually hosts a play along session where she compiles a PDF and then we just read down tunes and talk about them and uh, experience them and uh, see if we recognize it from somewhere else or you know, decide if it's maybe a vocal niggin instead of a instrumental tune or how, where does this live in klezmer space, right? So play-along sessions and there's translation sessions every two weeks with Hannah and Reuven and they've been working so hard at getting all of the text translations done, particularly of the Makinovetsky manuscript. It's has incredible chunks of text with really wonderful information to give us context for those tunes. And so those things are happening regularly. The mini digi series was like some presentations basically and conversations about parts of the corpus that have been worked on a lot. Um, We had uh, Hannah and Reuven present the text passages that are incredible. And um, Jordan did a little bit on Hasidic repertoire found in the collection and So with all these participants, they can pick a tune and just start. And what we've, we like to say is that they're the expert on that tune now, right? They, they're the ones that have spent the time with that manuscript image and made decisions about how to represent it in digital notation. And their choices have been informed by their knowledge about Klezmer in general and what they've experienced in the project with others as well. And so hopefully people are doing these and finding their own little tunes that they love and feel are theirs because they've spent time with that tune and then they take it and play it or they pass it along to someone. And so really, hopefully every participant who's had that experience feels and understands their value to the project for having done that. Um, We certainly on a regular basis, we'll talk about how incredible the KMD, KMDMP community is. There are many people who have done 
hundreds of tunes. Well, not many people. One, a few people have done hundreds of tunes. But anyone who has done a single tune has been an important contribution to, to this project. And the text people, it's, it's remarkable, remarkable what's been accomplished. In, we launched it in fall of 2020, so it has not even been three years. And so much has been done. Yeah, we're about we're about 150 tunes shy of having completed the, a first pass at notation on 1,300 tunes in the corpus. Uh, Hannah Ochner and Ruven Zaslavsky have kind of shepherded the early translation work, which involved a lot of people sort of contributing uh, in various ways over various periods. And they've gone through and just sort of gone through like start to finish and particularly with Makinibesky, they've like ground out like all of like basically I think all the text is all the text is done um, except for the like liturgical. I mean, then there's songs, liturgical settings, and that's a little bit of a different category in which, by the way, Bob Blacksburg has been a great contributor to the liturgical material. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. And He's a great um, contributor. So, yeah, we're in a bit of a transitional phase right now. And we're kind of I'm thinking about have not done it yet, but sending out kind of an invitation to all of our project participants to sort of help us think through what do we do next? What is, yeah. what, what, what should we be doing to, to help kind of carry on the energy in the project? Um, what can we be providing from our side and what do people want to do? What do people want to hear and sort of just engage that way? That's a thing. Uh, I want to talk about our scholarly editions project, but first I do want to also just mention um, Hannah Ochner. And Hannah Skutchna. So Hannah Ochner is a um, sort of a molecular physicist who takes pictures of cells with very powerful and very delicate, uh, fancy microscopes. Um, that's her day job. And she just completed her PhD in Germany and it's now in England with a postdoc, but in her spare time, she digitally notated probably more than 600 tunes out of the corpus. Wow. Right? <laughs> Not to mention all of the text that she's had Not her to hands mention on. all of the text. Yeah. Woo! Some people, uh-huh. right? It's amazing. So, and, and in, so there's a tune. So we've, you know, all of these tunes, they have these catalog numbers, KMDMP 02379745, whatever. You know, like all the t- tunes are sort of cataloged by numbers because most of them, the vast majority don't have titles or names. And the ones that do have titles are like Skutchna, you know, like, yeah, like usual. Uh, you know, normal stuff, the stuff we know. And so, we, you know, we've kind of made it a priority to like just start naming things. And mm. Hannah rescued this incredible tune from a piece of paper in a notebook that looked like it had been dunked in coffee, watered up in a ball, and then like, fed, you know, put in a mouse cage for a few days. So they nibbled all the edges off and then flattened out again and put into this manuscript notebook. And so she managed to get the music off of this page in its image form and notate it out. And it's this really cool Squatchna. And so we started calling it Hannah's Squatchna, right? And in classic Klezmerland fashion, there are already competing versions. Good. Mm -hmm. Totally. There's a whole there's we need the, to get back to that. There's the B natural school of thought and then there's the B flat school of thought on that one tune, which is awesome. Oh boy. 
It's yeah. awesome. Like there's one note. There's just like one note, and it's literally yeah, sure. on the on the image of the manuscript. It's it's there's a fold in the paper, so you can't see what's behind the fold. And behind the fold could there's be no way to know. It could be a B flat, or it could be a B natural. Well, yeah, and you got to respect that because those things, can, especially the older you go, in my experience. Accidentals can really surprise you because you think, oh, we're so you, you know, if you, you're so used to like, oh, it's in the mode, and I was just playing some tunes out of Susan's family's book mm-hmm. the other day, and I'm like, we are not reading these correctly. <laughs> you know, we're just, you know, we're just like making up what we think it is, which also is valid in its own way. You're like, but that can be another tune. That's like, you know, but yeah, you really don't, you don't with those old tunes. It could be. It, they're less predictable, I find. And and you've, you've hit it right on the head, too. In in this case, it's like, do you go with the mode? If you just went with the mode, you would play it with the B natural. Of course. Or the E natural. I can't remember what the note is. But you would play it with the one way that goes along with the rest of the mode. And I choose to play it in a way that, like, steps out of the mode for a minute, for a little hot minute, because it gives me a really cool modulation. Could and, happen. and that I, could be the case, you know. So, so yeah. I mean, and that's that's where it's all about. And we've we've got all these folks who've been like kind of trained up to be close observers, and I think that's really important too to like really think about those details. That's something we always try to talk about when we're teaching the tunes and doing the doing the transcriptions and all of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I heard it at your New York ensemble for sure. You know, it sounded great, and you accomplished a lot. You know, I'm thinking about maybe starting to move towards a wrapping up point. But before we sort of say what's next, because I do think this is a great platform for you to ask that question about what's next or invite people in in a new way. I actually want to just take a moment and hear a little bit about how this work has transformed each of you as artists. Sure. I'm just going to give a small anecdote here. Um, Christina goes out and teaches these tunes all over the place. And I don't play out and teach this repertoire as much as she does. So she'll have a lot more to say on this, but I play for a little Shabbos thing that happens in town here in Albuquerque and in Santa Fe. And just on Friday night, we had uh, about, I don't know, I think it was maybe 40 people gathered in a, in a living room for a Shabbos sing-along event. And we sang what we're calling the Sandia Niggin out of the, KMDMP repertoire and we've been doing it now monthly with that group and that evening was incredible to hear 40 voices together strong singing singing that tune and so it's uh I don't know it's it's incredible to feel like not only are you breathing new life into these tunes again but being able to pull a group of people who maybe certainly didn't show up to this event to hear Klezmer <laughs> or or Niggin from Eastern Europe. They're there for more new new tunes and and uh, they took to it. They loved it and there was so much joy and and energy in the singing of this tune that I don't know. It was delightful. That's really cool. I think that it just goes to show you that we do we all deserve to have that level of connection back to our history or if you're if that's not from your heritage you still can you know one of the greatest things that we've offered in this music is that we we are open you know we're open to people joining us and that's not the case of all 
folk styles. But I'll say that it's also really exciting for me to hear that one of the things that you're providing is more ways. Because the way I got through this was direct connection, you know, record, like you said, the old way, recordings and informants, right, or mentors. But that there are new ways now to get all the way back and bring it right into the present through these other methods that I think, again, are more democratizing because they're not dependent on, as dependent on people's time in that way. But yeah, that's so cool. Christina, how about you? Yeah, I, I, want, I don't want to let anybody get the impression that because we have these notated sources that, that listening to recordings and connecting with mentors is not like profoundly important because it's essential, yeah, right? Otherwise, right? You know, it's I, essential. I need to work, so let me <laughs> right, mentor totally. you, you know. <laughs> totally. Totally. And, you know, and that's how you, that's, you know, it's the klezmer isn't what's on the notes on the page. That is not the klezmer. The klezmer is what you have between your ears and what you learn from your mentors and what you learn from your recordings. It's how you perform it, perform it in an idiomatic style. Like that's where the klezmer is. It's what you bring to that, those notes on the page, right? So for me, like, I, I, I just can't think, you know, I'm just, it's just what I play now. Right. You know, right. I go to yeah, a gig yeah. and I'm like, oh yeah, I love all this other, you know, Bulgars and the, you know, the mid-century uh, repertoire and all the stuff that you play and Winograd plays and everything. But like in my own playing, like I'm really just sort of deep into this stuff and I love connecting. I mean, I'm, I'm the, I'm the, per, I'm a sheet music person. I have been for a long time. So like, like connecting, being able to like just see this music that's like written by musicians for themselves, right? Motul Raider's notebook. Baragowski writes in the right. catalog. This is one of Motul Raider's notebooks. It's like this guy's personal musical diary. And to get to see this klezmer and to just sort of think about who is this person reflected in the repertoire that they shared for themselves that, that they wrote down because it was interesting and meaningful for them. Like for me, that's just so powerful. And I think it communicates somehow like there's a rigor to it because you want to be respectful of where it comes from, but you also have this freedom, right? Because it's like, I'm, I'm going to just interpret it in the way that I, of who I am now, the klezmer that I am today. And that's super liberating and super exciting. And, you know, and I also love that a lot of the tunes, like there's no, there's no shade on the mid-century, the American klezmer scene or the American klezmer repertoire, but man, that stuff is hard. <laughs> those tunes are hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those dudes were trying to impress totally. people. Totally. Yeah, and like, no if you don't play clarinet, like it can suck for you. <laughs> Tell me about it. Come on. <laughs> right? So, so like here we have this like super violin-centric Music, a lot of it's pretty violin heavy, although not exclusively. You know, we got a lot of moderator tunes that are in four flats. So, like, that is there for you, for sure. Yeah, right. right. It is not there for the, uh, that is not there for the fiddle player. But a lot of the tunes are, like, super accessible. They are, they are deeply complex in the klezmer knowledge that they carry, but they're not technically difficult, right? That's important. And I think that makes them, like, doubly accessible for um, newcomers into the genre because I can communicate, like we can really be talking about how you phrase things and how you think about things and how you, um, you know, like ornamentation, texture, expressive phrasing, all of these things can be all kind of like talked about as you are not being held up by a technically challenging passage every 
other measure, you know? And for me as a, as a sort of an educator, as a communicator, like I find that like really exciting, you know, cause mm-hmm. like there's stories, like there's stories that go along with the, with the tunes. And when I get to play them, I'm just sort of getting to inhabit that, inhabit those, those things and let my mind just like go to that wedding. I think uh, we should tell folks where to get these tunes. Where to get the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, and also what's next. I think this is good. Like, yeah. What, how can they get involved? So we have a landing page on our website, klezmerinstitute.org slash KMDMP probably, but you can find it under projects. And um, you can register for the project there and then join mailing lists and stuff like that. Facebook group all of that, but um, you can access the PDFs, the digitized PDFs on, on that right website, from that right from that page, right from that even page. without registering for the project, but we would love to have you in the project. So you can get those those files there. One of the things that's happening next is we uh, received another NEH grant, which right. still, <laughs> thank you, still seems, I can't like even process it still um, that we've received too. And so this one is a planning grant for a set of critical editions of the KMDMP material. And so we have Mm. right now, we've convened a team and in the next two years, we're developing editorial policies and standards and coming up with design ideas for a set of critical editions that will be in some way, both print and digital formats. We don't know what that kind of hybrid thing looks like yet exactly, but that is really exciting. And we have two years to get into the weeds of like, Makinovetsky wrote it this way, but uh, this is not how you spell it anymore. (laughs) So how do we preserve these dialects, um, make these... Um, translations and transliterations that are both accessible and respectful of the original material there. And then making note choices. So we will go back through, eventually go back through everything with a fine tooth comb and get these charts to align with those standards. And then we'll have, be able to publish them with commentary and context yeah, it's another entry point for people. We hope that like when we put out the collection of Magnavetsky that a bunch of classical violinists are going to be like, "Whoa, where did where did this come from? I want to know more." And then we can mm. you know, give them the context and help them discover it. Right, that's that's another little component of the like what's next sort of thing is sort of helping to vision vision what this critical edition should look like, right? We have this Skylar Verstieke, they did a great visioning exercise for the Klezmer Archive that the whole team participated in before we got started in writing for the grant. And we're trying to copy that model that they showed us for this critical edition series. Like, you know, like how do we divide up this repertoire? I mean, we find everything from like two line Pesach tunes that sound like Pesach tunes because they're very, very simple to these four or five page ginormous like virtuosic violin solos, right? So how, how can we divide up this repertoire for people who have kind of skated through the tunes already? Like they can really help us sort of think through, well, what would be useful to you, right? You know, 
So that's a thing we're going to be putting together for sure to send, sort of send out and get some feedback on. But another part of the project design that we think is really important is preserving this idea of bringing scholars and our practitioner experts together into shared spaces. You know, and, and there's a lot of blurring of lines here. I mean, but we have, you know, Walter Z. Feldman, we have Asya Weissman-Schulman and Helen Beer on the sort of scholarly, leading up the scholarly team. And then, you know, Hannah Ochner and Ruben Zaslavsky round out the text team because they are, as of today, you know, the most experts in that material of anybody on the planet right now, because they have spent months and months working with the material. And the same thing goes with, you know, our music editorial team, going forward, you know, they've all had their fingers in this pie and will help us sort of figure out how we want to handle this material. It's really exciting. And it's kind of a new thing in the world. Like scholarly, scholarly projects sort of happen like one person has an idea. I want to do this thing. I'm going to write a PhD or I'm going to write a book. And then they go off, they have a few research assistants and they go do some stuff and then they write their book, you know, and I'm not saying that to dog the model because the model has been working pretty well for quite a long time, right? But because of the nature of this project and because of the sort of community focus around it, we wanted to make sure that that was reflected also. Like the project is not designed so that volunteers work for researchers, right? This is a project that is designed so that the volunteers are the primary, that they're the primary audience for the work you know, alongside scholarly folks who might be invested and interested to see what we come up with. But we want to make sure that it's not a, only a one directional flow of energy here. We want to make sure that the the community is able to be involved and the people who have invested time to become experts in the material will be part of the team of people who help to figure out what to do with the material and how to organize it, stuff like that. That's right. So if you want to have a say in this, you better go to the website and join the project because you might just be able to say something. I love it all. I'm so happy that you're doing this for the purpose of your leading, co-leading, being led by teams and volunteers and just big concentric circles of groups of people who are contributing all these different ways that give them a chance to have their own unique contributions and then also get to feed back into each other, get inspired. It's been wonderful to watch all the posts on the, and everybody arguing and loving <laughs> and getting into things. I mean, you know, we got to argue. Totally. That's who we are. Totally. And the, and the YouTube channel. I would not forget the YouTube channel. Cause like a bunch of people have like made videos of themselves playing tunes from the corpus mm. and that's awesome like we like definitely that's... more more and more of that like Yuta Bogan has like done a ton a ton of recordings and Sylvia Charanko and Susie Evans have done a, also a really yeah. substantial number of recordings and there's like a little form like if you make a video of yourself playing a tune you just put a form in and then and Berbotsky our <laughs> our robot automation assistant <laughs> I forgot about that absolutely essential contributor <laughs> yep, to your team. Verabosky totally. will send you a bunch of email and then we will get it up onto the YouTube uh, playlist, you know? That's it's right. Awesome. We'll definitely link to all those things. So I think that's probably a pretty cool place to wrap. Yeah. Clara Byam, Christina Crowder, Klezmer Institute, thank you so much for talking and for sharing 
so much amazing stuff with us, and I know there's a lot more to come. Thanks for having us, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was my conversation with the folks from the Klezmer Institute, Clara Biome and Christina Crowder. It was really awesome to talk to them. I am so excited about how big they are dreaming about all sorts of new ways to bring people in to our Yiddish world and to make this music accessible at new levels for really everyone. It's awesome. Feel free to take them up on their offer to get involved and add your own voice in to the work that they're doing and to what these projects will ultimately become. I know many of you listening are already pretty involved, and thank you for all the work you're doing. And thank you for listening to and supporting Radiant Others. Once again, you can support us on Patreon. You can support us by sharing episodes, either on social media or with your friends directly. You can support us by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I'm sure there's a lot of other ways you can support us. So please keep doing it. Us is me and Bela Unger, who produced and edited this episode. We'll be back in two weeks with another conversation between me and someone from our big Klezmer world. In the meantime, I wish you all well and good Shabbos. Shabbos.